0: Chapter 7 of The Dragon and the Raven by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. The Dragon and the Raven by G. A. Henty. Chapter 7 The Dragon. The Danes at Exeter, being now cut off from all hope of relief, asked for terms and the king granted them their lives on condition of their promising to leave wessex and not to return this promise they swore by their most solemn oaths to observe and marched northward passed out of wessex and settled near gloucester some of the saxons thought that the king had been wrong in granting such easy terms but he pointed out to the earl Dorman that, who remonstrated with him that there were many other and larger bands of danes in mercia and anglia and that had he massacred the band at Exeter, and this he could not have done without the loss of many men, as assuredly the Danes would have fought desperately for their lives, the news of their slaughter would have brought upon him fresh invasions from all sides. By this time all resistance to the Danes in Mercia had ceased. Again and again King Burherd had bought them off, but this only brought fresh hordes down upon him, and at last, finding the struggle hopeless, he had gone as a pilgrim to Rome, where he had died the danes acted in mercia as they had done in northumbria they did not care themselves to settle down for any length of time and therefore appointed a weak saxon thane Seolwulf, as the king of mercia he ruled cruelly and extorted large revenues from the landowners and robbed the monasteries which had escaped destruction of their treasures the danes suffered him to pursue this course until he had amassed great wealth When they swooped down upon him, robbed him of all he possessed, and took away the nominal kingship he had held. As there was now but little fresh scope for plundering in England, many of the Danes both in Anglia and Mercia settled down in the cities and on the lands which they had taken from the Saxons. The Danes who had gone from Exeter were now joined by another band which had landed in south Wales. The latter, finding but small plunder was to be obtained among the mountains of that country, moved to Gloucester and, joining the band there, proposed a fresh invasion of Wessex. The Danes, in spite of the oaths they had sworn to Alfred and the hostages they had left in his hands, agreed to the proposal, and early in the spring of 878 the bands, swollen by reinforcements from Mercia, marched into Wiltshire and captured the royal castle of Chippenham on the Avon. From this point they spread over the country and destroyed everything with fire and sword. A general panic seized the inhabitants. THE BETTER CLASS WITH THE BISHOPS, PRIESTS, AND MONKS MADE FOR THE SEA COASTS AND SENT CROSSED TO FRANCE, TAKING WITH THEM ALL THEIR PORTABLE GOODS, WITH THE RELICS, PRECIOUS STONES, AND ORNAMENTS OF THE CHURCHES AND MONASTERIES. ANOTHER PARTY OF DANES IN TWENTY-THREE SHIPS HAD LANDED IN DEVONSHIRE. HERE THE ELDORMAN Ada HAD CONSTRUCTED A CASTLE SIMILAR TO THAT WHICH Edmund HAD BUILT. IT WAS FORTIFIED BY NATURE ON THREE SIDES, AND HAD A STRONG RAMPART OF EARTH ON ANOTHER. The Danes tried to starve out the defenders of the fort, but the Saxons held out for a long time, although sorely pressed by want of water. At last they sallied out one morning at daybreak and fell upon the Danes and utterly defeated them, only a few stragglers regaining their ships. A thousand Danes are said to have been slain at Kinwith, but this was an isolated success. In all other parts of the kingdom panic appeared to have taken possession of the West Saxons. Those who could not leave the country retired to the woods, and thence, when the Danes had passed by, leaving ruin and desolation behind them, they sallied out and again began to till the ground as best they could. Thus for a time the West Saxons, formerly so valiant and determined, sank to the condition of serfs, for when all resistance ceased the Danes were well pleased to see the ground tilled, as otherwise they would speedily have run short of stores. At the commencement of the invasion Edmund had marched out with his band and had inflicted heavy blows upon parties of plunderers, but he soon perceived that the struggle was hopeless. He therefore returned to Sherborne, and collecting such goods as he required, and a good store of provisions, he marched to the place where the ship had been hidden. No wandering band of Danes had passed that way, and the bushes with which she had been covered were undisturbed. "'These were soon removed, and a passage three feet deep "'and wide enough for the ship to pass through "'was dug from the deep hole in which she was lying "'to the river. "'When the last barrier was cut, the water poured in, "'and the Saxons had the satisfaction of seeing the vessel rise gradually "'until the water in the dock was level with that in the river. "'Then she was taken out into the stream, "'the stores and fittings placed aboard, "'and she was pulled down to the mouth of the river.' Egbert had gone before, and had already engaged fifteen sturdy sailors to go with them. The Danes had not yet reached the seacoast from the interior, and there was therefore no difficulty in obtaining the various equipments necessary. In a week her masts were up, and her sails in position. The Dragon, as she was called, excited great admiration at the port, all saying that she was the finest and largest ship that had ever been seen there. While her fitting out had been going on, she was hove-to on shore and received several coats of paint. Edmund was loath to start on his voyage without again seeing the king, but no one knew where Alfred now was, he on finding the struggle hopeless, having retired to the fastnesses of Somerset to await the time when the Saxons should be driven by oppression again to take up arms. At last all was ready, and the dragon put out to sea. She was provided with oars as well as sails, but these were only to be used when in pursuit or when flying from a superior enemy. As soon as she had been long enough at sea to enable the band again to recover from the effects of sickness, the oars were got out and the men practiced in their use. As in the models from which she had been built, she rowed two banks of oars, the one worked by men upon deck, the other through small portholes. The latter could only be used when the weather was fine. When the sea was high, they were closed up and fastened the lower deck oars were each rowed by one man while the upper bank which were longer and heavier had each two men to work it before starting edmund had increased the strength of his band to ninety men that number being required for the oars of which the dragon had fifteen on each bank on each side at first there was terrible splashing and confusion but in time the men learned to row in order and in three weeks after putting to sea the oars worked well in time together and the dragon with her ninety rowers moved through the water at a great rate of speed. During this time she had never been far from land, keeping but a short distance from the port from which she had sailed, as Edmund did not wish to fall in with the Danes until his crew were able to maneuver her with the best effect. When at last, satisfied that all knew their duty, he returned to port, took in a fresh supply of provisions, and then sailed away again in search of the enemy. He coasted along the shore of Hampshire and Sussex without seeing a foe, and then sailed round Kent, entered the mouth of the Thames. The dragon kept on her way until she reached the point where the river begins to narrow, and there the sails were furled and the anchor thrown overboard, to wait for Danish galleys coming down the river. On the third day after they had anchored they perceived four black specks in the distance, and these the sailors soon declared to be Danish craft. They were rowing rapidly, having ten oars on either side and at their mastheads floated the Danish raven. The anchor was got up, and as the Danes approached, the golden dragon, the standard of Wessex, was run up the masthead, the sails were hoisted, the oars got out, and the vessel advanced to meet the approaching Danes. These for a moment stopped rowing in astonishment at seeing so large a ship bearing the Saxon flag. Then they at once began to scatter in different directions. But the dragon, impelled both by the wind and her sixty oars, "'Rapidly overtook them. "'When close alongside the galley nearest to them, "'the men on the upper deck, at an order from Edmund, "'ran in their oars, and seizing their bows, "'poured a volley of arrows into the galley, "'killing most of the rowers. "'Then the dragon was steered alongside, "'and the Saxons, sword in hand, leaped down into the galley. "'Most of the Danes were cut down at once. "'The rest plunged into the water and swam for their lives. "'Leaving the deserted galley behind, "'the dragon continued the pursuit of the others,' and overtook and captured another as easily as she had done the first. The other two boats reached the shore before they were overtaken, and those on board, leaping out, fled. The Saxons took possession of the deserted galleys. They found them, as they expected, stored full of plunder of all kinds—rich wearing apparel, drinking goblets, massive vessels of gold and silver, which had been torn from some desecrated altar, rich ornaments and jewels and other articles. These were at once removed to the dragon. Fire was applied to the boats, and they were soon a mass of flames. Then the dragon directed her course to the two galleys she had first captured. They were also rifled of their contents and burned. The Saxons were delighted at the success which had attended their first venture. "'We shall have rougher work next time,' Egbert said. "'The Danes who escape will carry news to London, "'and we shall be having a whole fleet down to attack us in a few days.' If they are in anything like reasonable numbers, we will fight them. If not, we can run. We have seen today how much faster we are than the Danish boats, and though I shall be in favor of fighting if we have a fair chance of success, it would be folly to risk the success of our enterprise by contending against overwhelming numbers at the outset, seeing that we shall be able to pick up so many prizes round the coast. We can beat a score of them, Egbert grumbled. I am in favor of fighting the Danes whenever we see them. When there is a hope of success, Egbert, yes. But you know even the finest bull can be pulled down by a pack of dogs. The Dragon is a splendid ship, and does credit alike to King Alfred's first advice, to the plans of the Italian shipbuilders, and to the workmanship and design of the shipwright at Essex. And I hope she will long remain to be a scourge to the Danes at sea, as they have been a scourge to the Saxons on shore. And it's because I hope she is going to do so good service to England that I would be careful of her. You must remember, too, that many of the Danish galleys are far larger than those we had to do with today. We are not going to gobble them all up as a pike swallows minnows." The dragon had now anchored again, and four days elapsed before any Danish galleys were seen. At the end of that time six large Danish warships were perceived in the distance. Edmund and Egbert from the top of the lofty poop watched them coming. "'They row thirty oars each side,' Egbert said, and are crowded with men. What say you, Edmund? Shall we stop and fight them, or shall the dragon spread her wings? We have the advantage of height, Edmund said, and from our bow and stern, castles can shoot down into them, but if they lie alongside and board us, their numbers will give them an immense advantage. I should think that we might run down one or two of them. The dragon is much more strongly built than these galleys of the Danes, and if, when they close round us, we have the oars lashed on both sides, as when we are rowing, It will be next to impossible for them to get alongside except at the stern and bow, which are far too high for them to climb. "'Very well,' Egbert said. "'If you're ready to fight, you may be sure I am.' The anchor was got up and the oars manned, and the dragon quietly advanced toward the Danish boats. The men were instructed to row slowly, and it was not until within a hundred yards of the leading galley that the order was given to row hard. "'Row hard.' The men strained at the tough oars, and the dragon leaped ahead to meet the foe. Her bow was pointed as if she would pass close by the side of the Danish galley, which was crowded with men. When close to her, however, the helmsman pushed the tiller across, and the dragon swept straight down upon her. A shout of dismay rose from the Danes, a hasty volley of arrows and darts was hurled at the dragon, and the helmsman strove to avoid the collision, but in vain. The dragon struck her on the beam, the frail craft broke up like an eggshell under the blow, and sank almost instantly under the bows of the dragon. Without heeding the men struggling thickly in the water, the dragon continued her course. Warned by the fate of the first boat, the next endeavored to avoid her path. Her commanders shouted orders, the rowers on one side backed while those on the other pulled, but she was not quite quick enough. The dragon struck her a few feet from the stern, cutting her in two. The other galleys now closed in alongside. The Saxons hastily fastened their oars as they had been rowing, and then betook themselves to the posts, those with spears and swords to the sides to prevent the enemy from climbing up, the archers to the lofty castles at either end. The Danes had the greatest difficulty in getting alongside, the oars keeping the galleys at a distance. For some time the combat was conducted entirely by the archers on both sides, the Danes suffering much the most heavily as the Saxons were protected by the bulwarks, while from their lofty positions they were enabled to fire down into the galleys. At last one of the Danish vessels rode straight at the broadside of the dragon, and breaking her way through the oars, her bow reached the side. Then the Danes strove to leap on board, but the Saxons pursued the tactics which had succeeded so well on land, and forming in a close mass where the Danish vessel touched the dragon, opposed a thick hedge of spears to those who strove to board her. The Danes fought desperately. Several notable leaders, hearing that a great Saxon ship had appeared on the Thames, had come down to capture her, and leading their followers strove desperately to cut their way to the deck of the dragon. Taking advantage of the strife, the other galleys repeated the manoeuvre which had succeeded, and each in turn ran their stem through the Saxon oars, and reached the side of the dragon. In this position, however, they had the immense disadvantage that only a few men at once could strive to board, while the Saxons were able to oppose all their strength at these four points. For a time the Saxons repulsed every effort, but as the lashings of the oars gave way under the pressure of the Danish ships, these drifted alongside, and they were thus able to attack along the whole length of the bulwarks between the castles. The Saxons were now hard put to it, but their superior height still enabled them to keep the Danes in check. All this time the five vessels had been drifting down the river together. Presently, when the conflict was the hottest, the chief of the sailors made his way to Edmund. "'If we get up the sails, we may be able to draw out from the galleys.' "'Do so,' Edmund said, and at once, for we are hardly pressed, and there are four to one against us. The sailors at once sprang to the halyards, and soon the great sail rose on the mast. Almost instantly the dragon began to glide away from the galleys. The Danes, with ropes, endeavoured to lash themselves to her sides but these were severed as fast as thrown, and in two or three minutes the dragon had drawn herself clear of them. The Danes betook themselves to their oars, but many of these had been broken between the vessels, and rowing their utmost they could only just keep up with the dragon, for the wind was blowing freely. Fully half the oars of the dragon were broken, but the rest were soon manned, and she then rapidly drew away from her pursuers. "'I am not going to run further,' Edmund said. Now that we have once shaken them off, let us turn and meet them again." As the vessel's head was brought up into the wind, the Danes ceased rowing. The fate which had befallen their two galleys at the commencement of the fight was still before them. They had lost great numbers of men in the attempt to board from the Saxon pikes and arrows, and their desire to renew the fight vanished when they saw that the Saxons were equally ready. Therefore, as the dragon approached them, they sheered off on either side of her and rowed for the mouth of the Medway. The Saxons did not pursue. They had lost eight men killed and seventeen wounded by the Danish arrows, and were well content to be quit of their opponents, upon whom they had inflicted a severe blow, as each of the galleys sunk had contained fully a hundred and fifty men, and great numbers of the Danes on board the other ships had fallen. They now left the Thames and sailed to Sandwich. The town had been shortly before burned by the Danes, but these had left, and some of the inhabitants had returned. Here the dragon waited for a week, by the end of which time the traces of the conflict had been obliterated, and new oars made. Edmund found no difficulty in filling up the vacancies caused in the fight, as many of the young Saxons were burning to avenge the sufferings which the Danes had inflicted, and could have obtained several times the number he required had there been room for them. He was therefore enabled to pick out sturdy fellows accustomed to the sea. When the dragon again set sail, her head was laid to the northward as Edmund intended to cruise off East Anglia, from whose shores fleets were constantly crossing and recrossing to Denmark. They picked up several prizes at the mouths of the eastern rivers, scarcely having to strike a blow, so surprised were the Danes at the appearances of the great Saxon galleys. Whenever the Danes surrendered without resistance, Edmund gave them quarter and landed them in small boats on the shore. Their ships, after being emptied of the booty they contained, were burned. When off Yarmouth, where they had captured four Danish vessels sailing out unsuspicious of danger, the wind veered round to the northeast and began to blow very strongly. The long line of sand-banks off the coast broke somewhat the violence of the sea, and the dragon rode all night to her anchors, but in the morning the wind continued to rise. The sea became more and more violent and the anchors began to drag. Edmund and Egbert, after a consultation, agreed that their only chance of saving the vessel was to enter the river. The tide was running in, but the sea was so heavy on the bar of the river that the efforts of the crew at the oars barely sufficed to keep her on her course. At length, however, she made her way safely between the posts which marked the entrance, and rowing up until they passed a turn, were sheltered from the force of the gale, and again anchored. As soon as the anchors were let go, the Danes began to fire their arrows but so powerful was the gale that the greater part of them were swept far away. As the day went on, the number of Danes on the bank increased largely, and vast numbers of arrows were discharged at the dragon. The crew kept under shelter, and although she was often struck, no damage was done. In the afternoon a fleet of galleys was seen coming down the river. The Danes possessed a large number of these boats at Yarmouth, and in these they navigated the inland waters far into the interior. The wind had shifted until it was blowing nearly due east, and Edmund and Egbert had agreed upon the best course to be pursued. In case of attack, they could hardly hope finally to beat off the assault of a large fleet of galleys, and would besides be exposed to attack by boats laden with combustibles. Therefore, as soon as the galleys were seen approaching, the oars were unlashed, the great sail hoisted, and at her best speed the dragon advanced up the river to meet her foes the danes gave a shout of alarm as the vessel advanced to meet them with the waters surging in a white wave from her bows and the greater part of them hurried towards one bank or the other to escape the shock some slower in movement or stouter in heart awaited the attack while from all a storm of missiles was pouring upon the advancing boat heedless of these she continued her way her sharp bow crashed right through the side of the danish boats and having destroyed seven of them on her way she passed through the flotilla and continued her course. The dragon weighed triumphantly from her mast as she passed under the walls of Yarmouth. These were crowded with Danes, who vainly showered arrows and javelins as she flew past, with the fleets of galleys rowing in her wake. A few minutes and she was out on the broad sheet of water beyond. The Danish galleys paused at the entrance in so wild a storm they would have had difficulty in keeping their boats straight while the great galley with her sails and oars would be able to manoeuvre freely, and could strike and run them down one by one. "'What is that pile of buildings on the rising knoll of ground, some three miles away?' Edmund asked. "'That's Bamborough Castle,' Egbert replied, a Roman stronghold of immense strength. "'Let us run up thither,' Edmund said. "'If, as is likely enough, it is unoccupied, we will land there and take possession. Are the walls complete?' "'Assuredly they are,' Egbert said. "'They are of marvellous strength, such as we cannot build in our days. "'They run in a great semicircle from the edge of the water, "'round the crest of the knoll, and down again to the water. "'There is but one gateway in the wall on the land side, and this we can block up. "'We need not fear an attack from the land, for between the river and the castle "'there are wide swamps, so that unless they row up and attack us from the water, "'we are safe.' "'I think they will not do that,' Edmund said after the taste which the dragon has given them of her quality. At any rate, I think we are safe till the storm abates." By this time, running rapidly before the wind, the dragon was approaching the great Roman fort, whose massive walls struck Edmund with astonishment. No one was to be seen moving about in the space enclosed by them. The sail was lowered and the vessel brought to the bank. The anchors were taken ashore, and she was soon solidly moored. Then the crew leapt on to the land and ascended the bank to the great level enclosure. The walls were, as Egbert had said, intact, and indeed, except on the side facing the river, remained almost unbroken to the present day. An hour's labor sufficed to block the gateway where a pair of massive doors were in position, where the place had been defended by the Saxons against the Danes at their first landing on the coast. A few men were placed as sentries on the walls, and, feeling now perfectly safe from any attack on the land side, Edmund and his followers returned on board the Dragon for the night. End of chapter 7 Recording by Mike Harris